Psalm 14, foolish atheism and godly hope. Foolish atheism and godly hope. Um, You may be familiar with the psalm, even if you didn't know it was Psalm 14, but you're most likely familiar with the verse that says, the fool in his heart has said what? There is no God. This is surely foolish atheism. But what we're probably unfamiliar with is the rest of the psalm, actually, because in the rest of the psalm, we see God's plan developing, unfolding, and we see our our sovereign God indeed has a redemptive plan for his people, despite this incredulous attitude of the wicked. Some of you may not be familiar with how the psalm even ends, and it says, Jacob will rejoice and Israel will be glad. And you may think that's not in Psalm 14. Psalm 14 is about uh, the wicked and how they deny God and how they would live as if there is no God. But in this Psalm, we see both. We see, as stated in the title, foolish atheism, but yet there is a godly hope. And aren't we glad that we have hope? Because where would we be without hope? I mean, what would life be? And even when we get to the end of our life and if we don't have hope, it can leave us with a sense of emptiness. And I pray that I will never experience it. And I'm sure that I would never experience it because I'm in Christ. And because I'm in Christ, I have a hope and that hope cannot be taken away. So regardless of what is happening around me and what men are saying and what men are saying about God, and if men deny God, that is in one sense um, of no consequence to me because I believe what God has said about himself. This is a beautiful psalm. Uh, the psalm is Davidic. You see it. Um, it says, for the choir director, a psalm of David. Now, some have questioned whether or not it could be a Davidic psalm because they look at verse 7 and they see when the Lord restores his captive people. So they think, wait a minute, uh, how could this be a Davidic psalm? Because he's talking about people coming back from an exile. But we're going to understand verse 7 a little bit later on, and that's not the best way that we can understand that wording in verse 7 when it says he's going to restore his captive people. The circumstances are really very general. Uh, It's a, a general look at the condition of humankind and the righteous judgment of God that is going to come. What type of psalm is it? Well, what we see here in this psalm is, is a merger of types, if you will. Um, there is an element of lament that's in the psalm because the wicked are having their due with God's people. There is uh, an element of wisdom in the psalm itself because advice is given in how we should respond to the people that would persecute us. There is an hymnic element of the psalm itself because there's an element where the people of God are called out to rejoice and to give thanks, if you will, and to be glad. And there's also this element of a prophetic nature in the psalm as well, that indeed God's people will be restored. God will give them their fortunes again. But with this psalm, there also there is a, a clear parallel to it and also quotations that we will see in the New Testament. Now, if you were to just hold your finger there in Psalm 14 and turn with me to Psalm 53, Because in Psalm 53, we see clearly almost identical. In Psalm 53, verse 1, 50, 14, and I'll just go back and forth a little bit here. 14 says, the fool in his heart, it says, there is no God. They are corrupt. They they have committed abominable deeds. 
There is no one who does good. 53 says what? Really the same thing. Uh, the difference here being, it says in the NASB, committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. Then in verse 2, Psalm 14, the Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there's one who understands, who seek after God. And then here in Psalm 53, verse 2, it says God looked down. Interesting here. So he goes from saying the Lord, uh, Yahweh, this covenant name for God. And then he says in Psalm 53, God, Elohim. And this is a part of a section of the Psalms, uh, 42 to 83, that focus on using Elohim, God. So now we see in Psalm 14, uh, this covenant name is used. And there's a reason that it's used, which you'll see further in verse 7. And then in 53, this general sense that God is looking down, seeing if there is anyone that understands who seek after him. Notice verse 3. It says in Psalm 53, every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. Very similar language in Psalm 14, verse 3. It says they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. And then in verse 3 it says there is no one who does good, not even one. So in Psalm 14, in one sense is what you would call uh, in the language is sort of an inclusio or bookends. So he makes the statement that indeed, in verse 1, there is no one who does good. And then in verse 3, he says, there is no one who does good, not even one. He is emphasizing it. So he starts the thought, he makes a statement about the thought, and he comes back again to make sure, do you understand there is no one who does good, not even one? And that's why in one sense we use the term, you know, a book in it, 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 it. Where it starts is where it ends. I started with this thought, I built the argument for my thought, and I come back to that thought again to make sure that you understand the point that I'm trying to make. Notice verse 4 in Psalm 53. It says here, have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and, and have not called upon the Lord? And in chapter 14, or this Psalm 14, it says, do all the workers of iniquity not know? And they eat my people as they eat bread. Notice verse 5 in Psalm 53. It says, There they were in great danger where no fear had been. For God scattered the bones of him who encamped against you. He put them to shame because God had rejected them. Now, if we go back to Psalm 14, not as much is said there. It's a simple statement. It says, They are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. But in Psalm 53, he amplifies the thought and he says, they're in a place of fear when there was no fear. God has scattered them. God has fought for them. Although they encamped against you, God was your warrior. He will put them to shame, although they sought to put you to shame. Then in verse 6, notice how Psalm 53 ends. He says, oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when God restores his captive people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. And similar language that we see, but then we see that in verse 7 of Psalm 14. God is a God that has a divine plan that's unfolding. And we look around us and we see men questioning whether or not God is, is of any relevance to their life. Of course he is. 
There are quotations from the psalm as well. Your mind may be thinking about Romans chapter 3, um, really verses 10 to 12, because there Paul uh, if quotes from this psalm and others to make his classic statement in Psalm, I'm sorry, in Romans 3, that there are none righteous. There's no one that can meet God's ultimate standard, not even one. And the psalmist has communicated that here. This psalm is also uh, a part of the early psalms that are showing these contrasts, um, contrasts between the ungodly and the godly. I just remind you of them, Psalm 1, right? Uh, there is one who delights in the law of God and there's one who despises the law of God. Psalm 2, the nations are in an uproar, but for the righteous, they have a refuge. That's a contrast. Psalm 3, the psalmist is fighting his adversaries, but yet there are those who are blessed by the Lord because they trust in him. Psalm 4, there are those who are worthless, the psalmist considers, but yet there are those who are godly. Psalm 5, there are those who are boastful and they boast in themselves and their life and, and what they can accomplish, but yet there are the righteous who humbly depend upon the Lord. Psalm 7, there are those who are pursuers of evil and they would even pursue the people of God, but yet there are the righteous who again trust in the Lord and wait on God to fight for them, although the enemy may be encamped against them. Psalm 9, we see the nations who again are in this sense of uproar and they would shake their fists against the living God. And then there are those that the nations would oppress, but God is with the oppressed. Even as we'll see in this Psalm, he's with the afflicted. He's with the poor. He's with the needy. Psalm 10, another contrast, the contrast between the wicked and the afflicted. The wicked would rise up, but God is still with the afflicted. Psalm 11, again, a contrast between the wicked and the righteous. Psalm 12, there's a contrast between the godly and the sons of men. The sons of men are arrogant and they're defiled, but the godly are those that rest in him and have hope in him. And then in Psalm 13, here are God's enemies, which are God's enemies because they're the enemies of the people of God. And if you are the enemy of God's people, you are his enemy. But yet in Psalm 13, there are those who trust in the Lord. And we find ourselves in the sense of contrast today, do we not? We stand out. We are different. At least we should be different. We should be distinct. People should say there's something different about those people and how they live and how they think and their priorities in life. And I would even say there's something about those people, even in how they die. Why? Because they die differently than we do because they have a hope that we do not have. See, our life is one of a contrast. The book of Ephesians tells us clearly, not limited to Ephesians, but this sense in which we have been called out of darkness into his light. And the scripture tells us, what should we do? We should be children of light. Ephesians 5.1 tells us that now you can be an imitator of God, whereas before Ephesians 2, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, and you walked according to the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that was working in the sons of disobedience. That is a contrast, is it not? And I ask you a question this morning. Aren't you glad for a contrast? Aren't you glad you're on the other side? And I say this to you, if you are not, if you're still in the darkness, you're a fool. This is what the scripture is telling us, you're a fool. But you don't have to be. 
Because all of us were fools at one point in time. And this is also what Paul says. We, we once walked according to the foolishness of our lust. You don't have to remain a fool. But rest assured, if you do not choose the wise way, God will have his way with you. So it's a contrast. But there's relevance for this psalm as well. You say, well, uh, this psalm of David, what's the relevance for us in 2020? Because we share David's observation that humankind is corrupt. Yet in the midst of corruption, God has chosen some from the earth. And he will, for those people that he's chosen, he will fight for them. Just as the people of God in times past would have been discouraged, if not for a purview of God's divine intervention, if not for a purview, then indeed God will bring us back again. He will give us our fortunes again. God will fight for me. God is my refuge. If not for that, they would be discouraged as well. And that's the beauty even of the psalm as, as we've been looking at them uh, in these past weeks. And you know, obviously, I have been going at a, a much faster pace. I've been doing four or five at a time. And I decided when I got to Psalm 14 that I just couldn't do it. I had to stop. In one sense, I had to preach a little bit from this psalm that you would understand these eternal implications of what is being communicated here when a person says that there is no God and he is essentially saying, I deny the relevance in your relevance in my life. And we would be discouraged if we didn't have this hope as well. I mean, we look around us. I ask you a question. I ask you a question. Is the world getting better or worse? What is your answer? Hmm. Is that fake news or real news? <laughs> That's real news. Amen. That is real news. It is getting worse. So the question would be, okay, here's your second question. You say that the world is getting best. At some point in time, will it get better? Will man correct it? Will he reverse it? Will he repent? Will he recognize God for who he is? And wholesale, what do you say? Will it happen? Will it not? No, I'll answer it for you. It will not. So the question is, how do we have hope? How do we not become discouraged? We realize that there is a godly hope in the midst of God, man shaking his fist to God. Go back to Psalm 14. Notice the flow of thought. So the fool is said in his heart, there is no God. Then what happens? They become corrupt. Uh, then they demonstrate abominable deeds. There is a declaration that there is none good. Then God says, well, let me, they're not seeking me. So let me seek and see if there are some who understand, who seek after God. Verse three, no, there aren't. They've turned aside. Together they become corrupt. There is no one good, not even one. And then notice verse four, do all the workers of iniquity not know? Who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? They are in great dread for God is, I want you to see these words even now, with the righteous generation. Notice verse six. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, that is speaking to the wicked, but the Lord is his what? Refuge. Verse seven, oh, that what comes out of Israel? Salvation of Israel will come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his people. So where is hope? With the righteous. His refuge. The salvation of Israel restores his captive people. 
So in the midst of doubting hearts, it would look to God and say, God, uh, you are not relevant. There is hope. And we have to live in that hope. Now, there are a number of questions that we need to answer from this text itself. And some of them I've said already in, in one way or another before we. And what are they? Number one, what is who is the fool? That's the first question we should answer. And how do we interpret the fool's pronouncement that there is no God? What does that mean? Is this an absolute? Is he, in fact, an absolute atheist when he makes this statement? Number three, what is the extent of the fool's corruption? How deep does it go? Number four, how should we understand this divine pronouncement that there is no one who does good? Then number five, what is the hope for God's people in the midst of this increasingly hostile world in which we live? Then number six, is there a reason to rejoice when all seems bleak? I was for our Pasadena Bible study last night. We met on campus and I taught the study and I think, um, I think Sean called it a jet through Ephesians is what we did. Uh, and one thing that we talked about, it was actually happening before the Bible study started about some of the effects of COVID and the lockdown and the, and the mental health of people uh, and emotionally how they feel. And even some who decided that they have taken their life. And even some that they know directly or indirectly, they have come to the end of themselves and say, I cannot survive because why? And I asked this question even before we started to study, why do people decide to take their life? And you can probably, because they have no what? Hope. hope. Yeah. When hope is lost. Why am I here? All the things that I thought would give me satisfaction no longer exist. So in this psalm, we're going to notice, it's going to break down in three parts. We're going to notice three considerations. And these three considerations are going to help us better understand the fool, moral decay, and the hope that God provides for us. And hopefully it will give us a perspective that will allow us, how do we live our Christian life in the midst of humankind's denial of God? The first is consider the fool's depraved heart. Consider the fool's depraved heart. And then we ask the question, who is the fool? Because it says the fool has said, and we'll just stop there. The fool has said, well, scripture is clear that the fool is one who rejects wisdom. He does not live in the fear of God, nor does he accept divine accountability. The fool is the opposite, obviously, of the wise man. To live a wise life means that a person is living a life with skill. That's the, that's the proper understanding of, of, of wisdom. Yes, indeed, wisdom is the ability to sit with someone and pass on your experiences in life. That is a part of wisdom. But you can only pass on that which you have. Do we agree with that? And so the wise person is a person who lives life skillfully. That's why we've talked about this before. That's why God, even in the Old Testament, when the tabernacle is being built, he says that God placed upon them a spirit of wisdom, but it wasn't that they would sit at the gate and talk about life. That was true as well. But in that context, they were given a spirit of wisdom. And it says in woodwork and silverwork and with gold, they had skill. They could use their hands to create this tabernacle for the Lord. 
And so now we take that idea of wisdom there and we bring it to life. And it's saying, how do you live life skillfully? And see, this skill is only given by the Lord and it is done graciously. And the only way that we can receive that grace is that a person has a fear of God. Because the scripture tells us what? That we're to fear God and keep his commandments. That is what Solomon said, really, is the whole duty of man. But see, the fool does not fear God. And of course, if we fear God, it tells us what? Uh, The fear of the Lord is what? What is the fear of the Lord? It is the beginning of what? Wisdom. You can live a skillful life when you have a fear of God. That somehow you recognize that he has every right over your life, every decision of your life and every decision you make. It must be taken through the grid of I am, in fact, the creature. He is the creator. And so now let me surrender my life to him. But what does the fool say? There is no God. I will not submit to him. He is not relevant for my life. I cast off his authority. The second question we can answer under this heading, how should we interpret the fool's pronouncement? There is no God. There is no God. Well, the first thing I should state is this. This is not a statement of absolute atheism. This is not philosophical or theoretical. This is practical atheism. I talked about this before in Psalm 10, practical atheism. When we live as if there is no God, we cast aside his authority in life. It is humankind not recognizing God as they should. And even if it were, say for instance, a statement of absolute atheism or philosophical or theoretical atheism, um, it would still be irrelevant. Today, um, when we think about those that consider themselves atheists, they really remain a small portion of society. But the majority are, I would say, practical atheists. Just some thoughts about atheism and the word itself. Um, The etymology of the the word for atheism originated about the 5th century um, BC from a Greek word, uh, atheos. And so now it's saying simply without God. And at times, a, a person that would reject the Roman gods, the Greek gods, they would be considered an atheist. And that's why Christians were often persecuted. Actually, the early church, they were considered to be atheists. Why? Because they did not accept the Roman system of deities because we serve the one deity. Amen. And so this thought developed, and it really, in one sense, um, emerged, atheism emerged in about the 16th century. And why did it emerge then? Because man is thinking he can free himself from God. He is a rational thinking creature, and not that he wasn't prior to it, but this age of reason, this age of enlightenment comes about. And, and so now let us cast away God, and let's think for ourselves, and we will be our own divine. Listen to some interesting stats here. 2010, and it's called the Eurobarometer survey in the EU reported that 20% of the EU claim not to believe in any sort of spirit, God, or life force. France leading the way at 40%. Sweden not far behind at 34%. Listen to this from, and it's from a book entitled A World of Atheism, Global uh, demographics. 
There are approximately 450 to 500 million non-believers worldwide, including both positive and negative atheists, or roughly 7% of the global population. There's some that dispute that. Um, some would say it's actually less than that. Perhaps it's only 4%. Uh, to a certain degree, we cannot be certain. And it says that non-believers are typically young, disproportionately male, and educated and are most likely to live in Northern Europe, Japan, and communist or formerly communist nations. Atheism varies greatly around the globe from as little as 2% in Venezuela to 10% in Ireland, 21% in Spain, and I mentioned before 41% in France, and as high as 55% in the Czech Republic. There is no God. And not only am I saying it practically, but I have a, I'm convinced, although one cannot be convinced that there is no God, but they make the declaration anyway, and that's why it's utterly foolish. Listen to this, and what is the Gallup International poll that was taken, and this is two, April 10th, 2017. 62% of the people in the world define themselves as religious. 74% of people globally globally have believe they have a soul. 71% believe in God. 56% believe in heaven. 54% believe in life after death. 49% believe in hell. The most religious countries are, number one, Thailand, 98%. Nigeria, 97%. Kosovo, India, Ghana, Papua New Guinea, and Ivory Coast are all at 94%. China is the least religious country where almost seven of 10 people are atheists, more than double that of any other country. And 23% consider themselves non-religious people. People want to be without God. So when he says here, the fool in his heart, he says, there is no God. It's a denial of God's relevance. It is not putting God in his proper role as the creator. And what happens when you say that there is no God and once since you want to distance yourself from the divine, what is going to happen? Well, there's going to be a rejection of God's authority, his rightful authority in life. And then what else is going to happen? There's going to be a cavalier attitude towards accountability and consequences because the heart says, I'm not sure if I'm going to pay the price for that. There are really no consequences because I'm not sure if I believe the divine has a role in my life or even in the life of society. And then, of course, there's going to be a collapse of morality. And this is demonstrated even in the fool. If we go back to Psalm 10, look with me at Psalm 10. In Psalm 10... We see this there. Psalm 10, verse 4. It says, For the wicked, I'll start in verse 3, for the wicked boasts of their harsh desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, There is no God. Notice, if you will, verse 6. He says to himself, I will not be removed. Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. So he makes this declaration of himself. I'm going to live my life. I'm going to put my, my anchor down, if you will, and nothing is going to unsettle me. What abject arrogance he has. And then notice verse 11. 
He says, he says himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see. And there's that sense in which he says, well, I will live the life that I want to live because I'm not going to be accountable to God. I'm not really going to face any consequences in life. And they make these decisions. Isn't it interesting um, how, how many times have you noticed someone make a poor decision and you say to yourself, what were they? Finish the word. Yeah. Why is that so easy to finish? Because we said it to ourselves at times, right? What was I thinking? Oh, we look at someone else. What were they thinking? You find out, what was this person thinking? Why would they do something that was so scandalous? Don't you know that it's going to be obvious? Don't you know? How is it that you are going to have this relationship with this person, and then you have a thread full of text messages that are clearly on your phone? How is it that you have rendezvous with this person that you should not have, and it's on your credit card that you share with your spouse? Because you're not thinking. Because somehow in man's heart or in a woman's heart to think, I won't pay the consequences for it. I won't be found out. God is going to forget. I'll get away with it. This is what the heart does. So this practical atheism is here. And the thing that we need to consider here is man living as a practical atheist. But yet the very breath that he has comes from what? a view of theism that in fact, there is a God, not atheism. The very fists that he uses to, to lift up his hands, if you will, figuratively, figuratively towards God is because God has allowed him to be able to do it. The very money that he earns and then he uses it for himself and for his pleasures is only because God gave him the strength to do it. And then even then we realize how patient is God? I think some of us, if we were to replace the divine, our fuses would not be the same, would they? I would not tolerate that. And God is so patient, is he not? And this is why the scripture even tells us in Peter, it says that God is patient, wanting you to come to repentance. Where would God, where would you be if not for the patience of God? I ask you that right now. Where would you be? if not for the patience of God. And there are people right now, I know it to be true. God is being patient with them even right now because it's the display of his compassion and his kindness and his plan unfolding for your life. I was sharing um, with people I was counseling recently. I said that um, I was actually writing the notes for Psalm 14. And I was going through the notes and what I generally do, I'll start with a legal pad and I, I write these thoughts out and I read and reread and read and reread and I'm, I go for a run and I'm listening to it time and time again. I already know it on my app, my app that I have, Psalm 14 takes a minute and 16 seconds. I know it already. So if I listen to it five times, I can change my workout or something like that. Then I just started to write on my legal pad some thoughts that I got from it. And I began to think about life because loved ones that I knew, friends that I knew that it passed into eternity. And I had to pause. And in the upper left corner, I put, I wrote my age. I won't let you see it. (laughs) (laughs) 
I wrote my age and I said, okay, I'm pretty good shape. Heart rate's pretty good. And I said, maybe I have so many years left. What can I do? And I thought, Lord, maybe if I have a little bit better, maybe I can get five more out of it. And I literally was doing this calculating. But of course, guess what? We don't know. And I was sharing with him. I said, you know what? I was on this campus sharing with those people. And I said, I could drive out on Roscoe Boulevard and that'd be the end of it. So the question is, what am I going to do with what I have? Am I going to be a practical atheist as well, like the fool? And live my life as if, as if it's my life? Or am I going to surrender it all to him so that I can die well? So let's move ahead. Notice he says, go back to Psalm 14. Psalm 14. We have observed this sort of incredulous attitude of those who believe that they can live a life of practical atheism under the very creation of the God that they want to deny. And this is why the New English Bible actually translates this part. It says that impious fool is what they say. And it's interesting, one translation that came across is a French common language translation. And when it says, uh, the statement, uh, there is no God, it says, God is powerless. That's how I view him. And that's getting at sort of the heart of it. And when we think about the heart, notice where it comes from. He said in his heart, the seat of emotions and thinking for men. Man wants to convince himself that God is irrelevant and he is relevant. And therefore, he's going to live by his own standards and goals but he doesn't realize the depth of his spiritual bankruptcy. Let's answer a third question. What is the extent of the fool's corruption? What's the extent of it? Look to verse one again. He says, they are corrupt. They commit abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. First, the word corrupt. And it could be, are they corrupt? Maybe inside, internally, they are corrupt. Or it could actually mean that they corrupt as well. Both are true, which we'll see later on. So they are corrupt people, and then they will corrupt others. The word corrupt, to be worthless, uh, to bring about ruin, to be vile, to even annihilate, is what it communicates. Look with me, uh, Genesis chapter 6. Genesis six eleven. It says there, now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. So God looks on the earth and what does he see? Corruption, violence, vileness, if you will, ruin. Look at Exodus 32, Exodus 32, verse seven. Um, this mountaintop experience that Moses has, excuse me, but the Lord spoke to Moses and he says, go down at once. For your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Because what were they doing? They had made a what? A God. So they said, Yahweh, we cast you off. We will make a God. And what does man do today? They cast off the God and they make gods. And it may not be a golden calf, but it is an idol nonetheless. Do we agree with that? Look at Job 15, verse 16. Job 15, 16, it says this. 
How much less one who is detestable and corrupt, man who drinks iniquity like water. And listen to this image. So what does man do? He satisfies himself on wickedness. When it should just be the opposite, man should be satisfied in the Lord, should he not? And what does the scripture tell us? Man shall not live by what? But from every what? That proceeds from what? The mouth of God. Jeremiah 17, 9, familiar text, right? It says what? The heart is more deceitful than all else, and it is desperately what? Sick, desperately wicked, corrupt is what he's saying. Malachi 1, 14, it says, be cursed, but cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it but sacrifices a blemish animal to the Lord. For I am a great King says the Lord of hosts. And my name is feared among the nations. And God is indicting the people in this text to say, how is it that you have a healthy animal here, but you give me a corrupt one here translated a blemished one, a ruined one. And so it, man is corrupt. And then it manifests itself. What in these abominable deeds, we see it in abominable deeds. Um, notice verse one again, he has committed abominable deeds. It, it means that they're dangerous. They're grotesque. They're out of place. They're repulsive. But, and, and the word is in one sense so vivid that it's, it's hard to, to translate. And so abominable, we think about something, oh, that's an abomination. We think it's just so cruel. It's so evil. It's so out of place. It's even grotesque. We think about the abomination of desolation, and what is going to happen? Because there is going to be, that's out of place. That should not happen in the temple of God. Man then, because he is corrupt, he is ruined, he will then make decisions that are ruinous, if you will. Um, the people of Colorado in this election, measure, ballot, um, decided that... Um, at 22 weeks that a child could still be aborted. And the advocates of pro-life were saying, at least perhaps this is a, a, a place we could meet because surely uh, you recognize that most of the medical community are going to realize that a child at that stage feels pain at that stage. So it's put up to vote. What do the people of Colorado say? Um, and it, the language was simple, that uh, there would be a, a ban on late-term abortions. So you think this is simple, surely. They said no. No. At 22 weeks, we may abort a child. And curious enough, and that one of the other ballots was that they had a ballot measure and I'm not saying this is wrong or right, but it was just curious sort of, sort of how they were kind of juxtaposed here in my mind, at least, um, that they also voted a ballot measure that they would put in resources to make sure that they save the gray wolf. Gray wolf is a beautiful animal, God's creature, but my friends, hmm, man is corrupt. He does what? Abominable deeds. So he is corrupt and then he corrupts others as well. Fourth question. 
How should we understand the divine pronouncement that there is no one who does good? Notice verse two, the Lord looks down and this imagery of looking down was the same in the flood. God looked down on the flood to see, is there anyone? God looked down in Babylon. God looked down on Sodom and he's saying, is there a righteous somewhere? And remember the, the bargaining that the man of God has with the Lord. And then God will look down from heaven, even in the book of Revelation, and he's looking on the desolations that he's going to bring upon men. So God is looking almost to say, I'm willing to give you a chance. Even as he would say of Sodom and Gomorrah, if there are enough righteous, I will relent of my wrath on you. But notice interesting verse three, God is looking down to see if there's anyone who understands who seeks after God. But notice they have all turned aside. The language is curious. So God is looking down, but what is man doing? turning his back on him because they turn aside. They turn towards evil. What happened when Jesus Christ, the gospel of John, it says this, Jesus Christ comes, the incarnate one. He came to his own and his what? Own received him not because they preferred the darkness over the light. They reject God. But notice as well, this is important. Verse three Together, they have become corrupt, corrupt. Why is this important? Because uh, in the the Hebrew language here, uh, what comes out in this word is that it's something that means it would sour. Actually, the word was actually used of milk that would sour. I don't know if you've ever made a mistake uh, and left the milk in too long and you pull it out. It is what? Oh, that's right. I saw your faces. And this is what he's saying about man. He has become corrupt. He has soured. And when he sours, what does he do? He sours all those around him. And what do they do? They have rage and they will enrage others. What do they do? Their mind is depraved. So they, they pull others into the depravity of their thinking as well. And this is why um, Solomon even say when he is writing to the princes of Israel, when those that say, come, let us shed blood, come, let us do evil. He says, pay no attention to them. The world is souring, is it not? So the question is, where is the sweetness? I mean, where is it? I mean, you look around, you might even say, and I would probably say, you see man souring. You might even say that it seems to be uh, happening exponentially. You say, why that? Because maybe we, you say that every year, but no, I, in my short life, I see what has happened perhaps in the last decade. And I say exponential because you say there was a sense in which even people that would not say they were church people would still say that's wrong. It's unimaginable to me right now. And I see some of the things that have happened here in the States when a person can actually say it's a legitimate judgment to say that you can loot and you can riot because they have insurance. They have insurance. That makes no sense. So you're driving your car. And if I decide, you know what, let's, let's play bumpers here. And I run into your car and I say, Hey, you have insurance. Utterly ridiculous. And it's laughable. 
And this is why a part, I think God, when, he, when man, they shake their hand towards the living God, that God says, I laugh at you. And this is why in Proverbs 1, it says that when, when calamity comes on man, that it says that man will laugh on them because they did not heed wisdom. Consider the fool's judgment. Consider the fool's judgment. Verses 4 to 6. What is the hope for people in the midst of an increasingly hostile world? I mean, where is the sweet and the sour? It is the question. Notice verse 4. Do all the workers of iniquity, strong language here, I can't, I'm going to have to edit here. I can't say everything I'd like to say. But strong language, workers of iniquity, strong word for iniquity that's communicated here. Who eat my people as they eat bread, who do not call upon the Lord. Why this language? Uh, One scholar has translated it, who devour my people to feed themselves. And the imagery that he's giving here, um, they eat my people as they eat bread, because bread, when you eat bread, is pretty casual, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't require a great deal of effort. You don't concern yourself with it a great deal. You sit down and you have your piece of bread. And what God is saying through this language here, it is very purposeful. He's saying, you treat my people with such ease. You afflict them with such ease as if you're just sitting at your table eating a slice of bread, but I will not have it. I will fight for them. And you will give an account for the blood you shed. That's what he's saying. And people in the world, they may be eating their bread now, but come eternity, they will pay a price. And what's in, I love, if we look, if you will, um, my mind is editing. Let's do this. Let's go to the third point, verse 7. Consider the faithful's devoted requests. So he cries out, oh, that salvation will come out of Zion. And the Lord restores his captive people. Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. So is there a reason to rejoice when all things bleak? Absolutely. His captive people means the idea he's going to restore their fortunes. This is not talking about, I believe, a captivity from exile or a return from exile where they were captive people. But I'm going to give you your fortunes again. Because what? You were persecuted, the, the afflicted were persecuted in verse 6, but I'm your refuge. Um, they acted wickedly, but I'm with you, he says in verse 5. I'm going to give you those fortunes again. Job 42 and 10, it says, The Lord restored the fortunes of Job. Amos 9, 14, it says, I will restore the captivity of my people and I'm going to build again the ruined houses and they're going to plant vineyards and there's going to be fruit and they're going to have gardens. I'm going to give you a good life again. There's going to be rejoicing and gladness. The world is a mess. We all agree with that. It is spiraling out of control morally, but this is no different than it has been even from its beginning. Imagine if you were alive during World War II, what would you say? Oh, my, the world. If you were alive in World War II, you would say, oh, my, the world. Look at it. Literally, the entire world is at war with one another. 
the atrocities that were happening in Asia and happening in Europe, you would say, how can it be? Surely God is going to come again. Look at the corruption of man and look at, remember when I said this idea of corrupt, soured milk, abominable deeds, that a person is corrupt and then they can corrupt others? Is there perhaps, perhaps, there are several examples, but one of the greatest examples is Adolf Hitler. Corrupt and then corrupted others. So where is our hope in the Lord? It is. There's no other place to look. A final thought for you. We talked about contrast. Let me give you some. Uh, do a little differently here. Contrasted endings. Okay. We talked about through the Psalms, the early Psalms, the wicked, the righteous, the persecuted, those that have trust in the Lord. How people die is important. It is. Voltaire, familiar with him, 18th century French. Some would say atheist, some would say he was a deist, one of the greatest, greatest writers of time. He, he wielded his pen against Christianity at times. And he said even this, and I quote, in 20 years, Christianity will be no more. My single hand shall destroy the edifice. It took 12 apostles to rear. However, Voltaire's arrogance was swallowed up in death because in May 30th, 1778, he died. And when he died in his own words, he said this, I was abandoned by God and man. And shortly after his death, Listen to this. The very house in which Voltaire wrote became what? A depot of the Geneva Bible Society. Amen? (laughs) Amen. So God says what? I'm laughing at you, Voltaire. All those skills that I gave you, creativeness, your, your vocabulary, your syntax should have been used for the glory of God. You will destroy Christianity. The gates of hell will not do what? No, will not prevail. And you think you will? I laugh at you. Geneva Bible Society, build over his place. Even this, listen, the Christian physician who attended Voltaire during his last illness has a last, who left the testimony. He wrote this, when I compare the death of a righteous man, which is like the close of a beautiful day, with that of Voltaire, I see the difference between bright, serene weather and a black thunderstorm. It was my lot that this man would die under my hands. Often did I tell him the truth, but he wouldn't hear because he was a fool. This is what fools do. They hear truth, but they don't abide by it because they say in their heart, there is no God. I will not abide by him. I will not consider him the authority in my life. This is what fools do. Thomas Paine. (laughs) Excellent thinker as well. American author. Some would call him an infidel. Listen to what he said, though. I would give worlds if I had them. That the age of reason had never been published. In his age of reason, um, it's this idea that he thinks about. We are people capable. Um, It's enlightenment. It's, It's we can be rational. We don't need organized religion. 
And even he actually said in the age of reason, when he would indict organized religion, whether it be Protestantism or the Roman Catholic church or the Orthodox church, he said, Payne said, my mind is my church. Hmm. How does it end though? He says this, Oh Lord, help me. Christ help me. Oh God, what have I done to suffer so much? But there is no God. But if there should be, what will become of me hereafter? Stay with me for God's sake. Send even a child to stay with me for it is hell to be alone. If ever the devil had an agent, I have been that one. Couple more minutes. I need to close with this. Charles the ninth. Wretched individual. He orders the massacre of the Huguenots. 15,000 slaughtered in Paris alone. In that beautiful city of lights. It's a beautiful city. But most beautiful cities have blood over it at some point. And then another 100,000 in other sections of France. What was his reason? That they had Christ as their master. The guilty king who died bathed in blood, literally coming from his own veins. It says to his physicians, he said in his last hours, asleep or awake. I see the mangled forms of the Huguenots passing before me. They drip with blood. They point at their open wounds. Oh, that I had spared at least the little infants at the breast. What blood? I know not where I am. How will it all end? What shall I do? I am lost forever. I know it. Oh, I have done wrong. God, pardon me. But there's a difference in those that have a godly hope. Samuel Rutherford, godly man, pastor, beautiful works that he's written. He said, when I'm dying, he said this, I am in the happiest past to which man has ever come. Christ is mine and I am his. And there is nothing now between me and resurrection except paradise. Dr. William Anderson, as he is nearing his death, his mother, his mother, sorry, his mother is in the room with him. He gently called to her. Come over here a minute. As she approached his bed, he said, I want to tell you something. I'm going to beat you to heaven. And with a smile, he shut his eyes and was gone. Adorium Judson. We know him. Wonderful missionary, Burma. He's the one that wrote, uh, come Holy Spirit, um, dove divine, other hymns. He died at sea. His body was committed to the great deep. He said this, I go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from school. I feel so strong in Christ. Y'all remember that, right? Man, school's out. Especially summertime, right? I remember it. When, when I read it, I thought, oh my goodness, Adorium Judson, you, I absolutely understand what you're saying. I'm going home. I'm free. I'm strong in Christ because you have a godly hope. 
unlike the atheist that says there is no God, then what is your future? John Wesley, his words were few. Listen to this. The best of all is God is with me. God was with the godly generation in Psalm 4. God is going to restore their fortunes. But I give you these final words as I thought about it. I have to give you these final words of dying well and godly hope. Matthew, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then we come to Luke. We come to Luke and it says this in Luke today, you shall be with me in say it. Then he says this father into thy hands. I commit my. Then we go to John and what are his final words? It is finished. See, that's hope. See, that's why in the midst of the chaos that you see around us, you can have hope. Because he said, my God, my God, my God, my God, today you shall be with me in paradise. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. Then we talk about fortunes restored. Oh, my. He says, I go away to prepare for you. And he's gone away. Do you believe that today? But I am, I'm... I'm concerned as well. Do you have godly hope or are you a fool? Are you a fool? You don't have to be. Because he said it's finished. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left the crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Father, we thank you. These words you give us encourage our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.